0: Hi, Christine. How are you doing? Hi, Al,
1: Hello. (laughs) I'm good. How are
0: you? Um, I'm excellent. And I have a really great question for you today. It's actually something that I personally have have worked through a lot. And I I know you've thought about a bunch, too. Mm -hmm. So have you ever learned a fact about an artist that has changed how you view their art and them?
1: This is a really good question because this is essentially, do we separate the art from the artist? Right, yeah. and as as an art historian and an art educator, I encounter this kind of question a lot from students, from museum veg, uh, visitors, from friends of mine, and oh, yeah. it's, they're wondering where the line is about mm-hmm. how much. I mean, we're going to get into this, but, but like how much does the artist themselves come into this conversation? And I think it's often in the context of their personality, their biography, and their values and opinions and actions and things like that. And I think we're going to spend the next hour or so kind of (laughs) digesting all of those questions. Sure. There is one particular artist. I'm generally pretty good at separating things as a method of survival, honestly, just because of my job. But there is one particular artist so much, and it's so much so that I don't teach his art in my class, in either of my classes. Um, So Paul Gauguin is an artist that often comes up in this conversation. So I'm not going to use a lot of our airspace in talking about him because he's been very well covered, and there are a lot of resources in internet lands that are, if they are so inclined, our our dear listeners and friends can go and engage in. And I'll let you go on that journey if you want to. I personally would rather not use my time on him. But he's one of these artists that I never really liked his style. I didn't like his artwork, but I recognized that he had some kind of value to art history, mostly because my professors told me so, and I had no reason to doubt them. Fair. Yeah, exactly. And... Now that I'm a professor myself, I'm like, yeah, these people knew what they were talking about, right? (laughs) But then I took a really interesting class in college on primitivism and modern European art. And we talked quite a significant amount about Gauguin and particularly about his work in Tahiti and his one painting in particular called Spirit of the Dead Watching of 1892, which is probably one of his most known and recognizable
0: artworks. Oh, definitely. Yeah, Most please. Definitely.
1: take your. If you'd like to take your moment and go look at it, I don't even want to post it on Instagram. That's the level <laughs> that I'm at with this. But learning about his biography and how that informed the way that he painted the people of Tahiti and really the way that he painted the people of Tahiti was just so very distasteful on a grand scale to me and made me feel so yucky that... I, I felt validated in both not liking his artwork anymore mm-hmm. and to not really recognizing his contribution to art history. I think if all the gogans disappeared from the face of the earth, art history would look very similar. <laughs> if you want to come at me, let's do it. Let's fight. I'll put the rings up. It's nope. okay.
0: Not, not coming at you. Not coming at you. <laughs> I, I was ready? actually laughing because I think that oftentimes there are artists who don't sit well with me and I don't. Always know why upon just looking at it, and the more I delve into their work and how it came to be and them, the more, yeah, it, it, I'm like, yeah, that's that's kind of why I didn't like that, but yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And I think what we constantly come back to over the course of this first season, and this is our final episode of this season, by the way, which is bonkers. People hold art, individuals hold art so close to themselves. Mm-hmm. that they cannot be budged on their feelings and opinions on art unless they are open and willing to have their minds changed. And I don't For know sure. about you, Elle, but I think everything that I am open and willing to have my mind changed about could fit in a shoe.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, people uh, get very set in in what their pillars of, of who they are and, and what their opinions are. And it's one of the reasons that conversations about change can be so challenging, right? Exactly. And that brings us to welcome friends to It's Just Art, everyone's toolkit for artful conversations. In this podcast, we seek to bridge the divide between people and works of art by exploring the ways in which we connect with art every day. Here, we share with you the skills and vocabulary, what we call our toolkit that we have developed over years of studying and teaching art history. We discuss art forms of all kinds, from oil paintings and street art to crafts and music. We believe that art is evidence of humanity and that making art is the most human thing that we can do. Art is all around us. It does not exist only in museums and galleries. You don't need a degree in fine arts to know what makes an artwork beautiful or important. It's not foreign or exclusive or untouchable. It's just art. My name is L Claus. My co-host is Christine Staten. Anna Boyer is our music guru, and we thank you for joining us. Today's topic is Can we separate the art from the artist?
1: Yes. Can we separate the art from the artist? And in fact, should we?
0: There are people
1: who will die on either side of this hill. And as much as I respect a commitment, this is a challenging, complex topic that needs to be taken on a case by case basis. Yes. So, how do we broach this? Let's think about just how many ways this question can be interpreted, right? So what do we mean oh, when we say, can you separate or should you separate the art from the artist? Those are in fact yeah. very different questions. But when you hear this question, Al, what do you think about?
0: Oh, goodness. So as you said, it can be very complex. I mean, just to start off with, again, as always, we're not just talking about paintings. I know that this season we've talked a lot about paintings. And that's because it's it's generally a good jumping off point. But when we're talking about art in this context, we are talking about all forms of art. So one of the things that comes into play for a lot of people is the artist's bio, right? Like what in their life did they do? What choices did they make? And who were they as a person? And sometimes that can play a huge role in my personal opinion, right? But a lot of times it doesn't necessarily. For example, an artist who does would be like Basquiat, for example.
1: Right. And but here's the thing, like, does the artist's biography, somebody like Basquiat, whose identity, his sexuality, his nationality, do those things play into or contribute to his art, to the style of his art and to the subject matter?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, Do you want to tell people a little bit about Basquiat's background just in case they've never heard of him?
1: Sure. It'll be very superficial. I warn you. Yes. Um, But Jean-Michel Basquiat, who recently, just a few, I say recently, it was probably five years ago already, (laughs) um, recently became the highest Selling most expensive American artist. He had an artwork sell at auction for I think over $120 million and I believe it was 2017 and he blew Andy Warhol out of the water. He was a Haitian-American gay artist who was a protege of the prolific American artist Andy Warhol. He died very young at the age of 27 in 1988, unfortunately, to a drug overdose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And his identity as a black man, as a Haitian man, as a gay man, it is all incredibly relevant to the artwork that he created and continues to be incredibly relevant to the artwork he created. There's a tremendous film called Basquiat, B-A-S-Q-U-I-S. I-A-T. And of course, the subject matter of that film is Shomisha Basquiat. And it's about his meteoric rise of fame in the art market as a very young man and his relationship with Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. But another far more famous example of an artist whose Mm -hmm. life and health, to a huge extent, plays very directly into their body of work is Vincent Van Gogh. And this is an older example. He died 1890, Mm -hmm. apparently by a suicide. And Mm -hmm. his health issues, his mental health issues and his life really are important to understanding his body of work.
0: Yeah, I think Van Gogh, for uh, people who don't know this, only sold one work in his entire lifetime. And that was a work that his brother basically sold to a friend, getting a favor, basically. And a lot of people can very deeply connect and have since then connected to Van Gogh's work. At the time, he was very out there and people didn't quite understand what he was doing or why it mattered. But there's a a painting that hangs at the Philadelphia Museum of Art called Rain. And that work very much speaks to me. It is a work that every single time I go to that museum, I stop and I look for it in case they've moved it. Because sometimes they move it, but it's always out. And it is just this lovely painting of a field during the rain. And most people could easily walk past it and ignore it. But to me, I see sadness in that painting. I see depression. I see what it feels like when the world is just completely dreary all around you. And that's an amazing thing to be able to communicate in a painting, right? But if you didn't know about Van Gogh's depression and you didn't know anything about his background and and mental health issues he struggled with, you wouldn't necessarily know and understand that that is exactly what he was painting mm-hmm. was his mental state and, and dealing with what he was dealing with. And so, even yeah, if I, you
1: don't know that, I think you could still look at that painting and think this person has to know what's going on. Absolutely. i have sure, always sure. so attracted to that painting because of the texture. So if you find yourself in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Please don't go seek this painting out. It is missable if you are not looking for it. But they have given it quite pride of place these days, which is terrific. Yeah. And then send us a picture if you're looking. Have a selfie. If you yes, definitely. Please,
0: if you're ever near any of the artworks that we talk mm-hmm. about on this show and get a shot with it, yeah, please share it with we, us because we, we would love, love to see you all with with those artworks. But no, to, to get back on topic, sure. there are there are moments like with Basquiat and Van Gogh, how their personal life and who they are as people greatly influenced the creation of their artwork, right? What their artwork but then looks there are like other, and what it says. Exactly. Like the, the purpose behind it, meaning messages, etc. And I think that a lot of people today, when they think about artwork that connect that idea with art like the art and the artist being connected in that way right but historically that's not the case historically artwork was commissioned by someone we've said this before I'm sorry we'll say it a million times more commissioned by someone and the artist created what they were commissioned to make right so you need to keep that in mind when you're looking at something but I think another thing that comes into play is you know what space do we give the artist as a person right are we putting them on pedestals and holding them up to standards of today versus you know what life would have been like for them then or are we allowing them to to have a chance to be a person right i think that is something that comes into the mix there
1: this conversation is always really difficult for me to have because i'm a historian and i am as it is survival for me to separate this out. Um, and I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but it's also a really important conversation to have as a, as a mm-hmm. his- historian, because as we'll talk about again, I hope later, historians are, are kind of like storytellers mm-hmm. and they're almost conduits into a life of from the past. And I think what happens is over the course of temporal distance or geographic distance is artists tend to be dehumanized. Yeah. They aren't allowed to have been a person they become a paragon they become a legend like michelangelo il divino the divine michelangelo that guy was a dude he walked around he talked he had friends he had family he said funny things i'm sure he said cruel things I know he did.
0: He put his pants on one leg at a time.
1: He did. He refused to take his boots off for a while. But (laughs) just using him as an example, he was a nasty dude. I'm not going to go into it because people might have (laughs) sensitivities. But it seems that he wasn't, right? So the really fun thing about being an art historian and kind of getting into these personalities, we could say, of artists who lived hundreds of years ago or even just decades ago, they were people. And I think Mm -hmm. when we refuse to separate when we do that, we deny them their humanity because yes, they were a, an artist and they were probably a, a very intelligent, great genius, creative person who who gave a lot to the world. They were also an imperfect, flawed, often lovely, often difficult, just person like the rest of us are. And yeah. that's important to recognize for me that yeah, these were just sure. people and the choices and opinions they have come from the environment that they come out of. Some things Mm -hmm. are in their control. Some things are not just like it is today. And we have to recognize that, I think, within reason, obviously.
0: I think this kind of leads to the greater question that we're also kind of skirting around here is, can we continue to celebrate artists who are slash were, depending on when they were alive, terrible people?
1: But what does that mean? What does that person. mean
0: right passing passing judgment on whether someone is a terrible person comes into play for sure, but then can we you know if we have decided for whatever reason that we think that someone is not a great person that they chose to do things are choosing to do things that we don't like, can we celebrate their work
1: exactly and does that mean that, that if the museum puts up a picture by this person mm-hmm. or some kind of artwork that this person who it is known did said believed deplorable things, Mm -hmm. does that mean that the institution or the person who owns that artwork, does that mean that they condone, agree with, and celebrate those actions? It depends.
0: Yes. What we're trying to do here today, right? What, What are we getting at here today? I think what Christine and I are aiming to do is to clarify this struggle, to kind of talk about the different sides of it, and to kind of give people uh, a framework to struggle through some of these decisions for themselves, right? Because the most important thing that you can take away from this, I'm going to say it right now, and I'm sure I'll say it again later, is that this is a personal decision, right? Every person has to decide on an individual basis from person to person, from artist to artist, where their boundaries are and what works for them, right?
1: Cheers to that. Yes. Thank you. And yeah, exactly. There are a lot of artists that I just recognize it. I see it and I move on. Yep. Um And other times I can't do it, like with Goga.
0: So the way that we're structuring the rest of this discussion today is we've taken two case studies. We each chose an artist that we felt could help illustrate the discussion that we're trying to have here today. And we chose them for different reasons to give you kind of polar opposites of situations and to kind of give you more insights into different ways that we personally have made decisions about artists that we have come into contact with in our lives. Right.
1: Yes. We made a huge list when we were prepping this and we said, no, there's no we can't do. This. No, no, no. Too much.
0: <laughs> so many. Too
1: little time. We're missing too many things. We're emphasizing too many other things. Let's just pick two. So this is very reductive, let me say. But for the sake of just not being here for an entire year, we have picked two artists. So if I may, El, Yes, please. I can get us started. So I picked an artist that is a historical example of, of a lot of these kind of issues get pulled up with him about do we bring in the biography? You know, are we even interpreting that correctly? And if he did all of these vicious things, like why do we celebrate his artworks? So let me just jump right to it. The artist's name is Michelangelo Merisi da Caravaggio. Not to be confused with Michelangelo Buonarroti, who painted the Sistine Chapel and did, carved the David and all that. This is a different person. He had the same first name, but he came from a place called Caravaggio, which is in the north of Italy. So we refer to him as that, as Caravaggio. That's how he is known in books and museums and, and all that. So I'm going to call him Caravaggio. But it's interesting that that's actually his hometown. He died about 1600, 1610, I should say, actually, he died about 1610 in Italy after a short tumultuous and prolific career as a painter. He is one of the seminal painters of the Italian Baroque period. If you take your introduction to art history class, you will likely start in early days with him. So his biography is often inflated and tied into his body of work at a time and place when that's actually quite dangerous and irresponsible to do. He's often associated with modern-day gay culture. Now, this is not a hurtful act, but is the direct result of reading the artist's biography into this work, particularly with one of his patrons. It has been hypothesized that this patron was a homosexual man, and that's why the paintings that Caravaggio painted for him look a certain way, and Caravaggio was only ever so happy to oblige to make paintings like this, maybe because he was gay as well. Here's the problem with that. We can't use those words because the word homosexual, the concept of homosexual, was not invented until about 1890. And the whole idea of it being an identity, a community, just a state, um, is entirely modern. So to use the language which has been used by historians, not so much anymore, it's finally we're kind of getting over it, but using this kind of language that is totally specific to our day and age and applying it to the early 17th century, it's totally inappropriate and just bluntly incorrect. His artwork looked a specific way for very different reasons. But he also performed certain actions which are still associated with him and still leave bad tastes in the mouths of a lot of modern viewers. Caravaggio is still labeled today by art authorities, including the National Gallery of Art in London, as a murderer, that he killed a man in the streets by stabbing him or in a sword fight. Really, what happened, according to the archival documentation, is Caravaggio was out with some friends in the evening walking through Rome. They encountered another group of men, there was a disagreement between two other men, between those two groups, and a fight broke out. And in the fight, somehow in self-defense out of the chaos, Caravaggio killed one of the other men. Yes, he had a weapon on him. These are different times and different circumstances. But the way the story is presented, and calling him a murderer, makes it sound like he went out vindictively and just stabbed a guy in cold blood. And that's in fact, not what happened.
0: Especially since a lot of times the context that people have for that is just one sentence in a list of information on a card that they've read for two seconds. And that gives a lot of connotations without a lot of background, right?
1: Right. You'll be trying, you'll be in the museum. Say you're in the National Gallery in London and you're looking at the Supper at Emmaus, which is one of his most famous paintings. It's a beautiful painting. And I don't know if the label currently says this. It's been several years since I've been at that museum. But if it says, well, Caravaggio, mostly known as a murderer, did blah, 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 blah. Now that's all you know. That's all you're going to take away from that experience with that painting. Is that what you need to know going into your experience viewing that painting? No.
0: Yeah, not not at all.
1: No, because there was a direct result, of course, of that incident. He then had to leave Rome and go live in the south of Italy and in Malta as an exile. But it doesn't directly affect how the artworks at the National Gallery appear. And there's even been suggestions that there is a Caravaggio painting of David and Goliath where the young shepherd, biblical shepherd boy David has beheaded the giant Goliath. He's holding his severed head, and I have seen it in... Art historical scholarship that it's been proposed that Caravaggio painted his own portrait as the head of Goliath in order to repent his sins or something like that. What? It's, it sounds ridiculous. It's as ridiculous no, that is as ridiculous. it sounds. <laughs> it is as ridiculous as it sounds. That's why I say this is irresponsible and dangerous. Oh, goodness. In certain circumstances, to read biography into these artworks yes the head of Goliath kind of looks like that but I I'd have to look at this article again and see if we have any kind of archival primary resource to to back (laughs) that up I think it might just be this guy so So, I'll send you this article because it's going to drive you insane
0: oh please do so quick question for (laughs) you before we move on to my study please if Caravaggio was removed from art history would it change art history
1: Yes, because while his career was very short, mm-hmm. his legacy was very long. And throughout the course of the 17th century, up to the year 1700, artists, Italian artists and other and artists from other European nations continued to look at his body of work and to mimic and emulate his style. There is an entire school of artists called the Caravaggisti, the mm-hmm. followers. Of Caravaggio, one of the most famous being Artemisia Gentileschi, who we will come back to at some point in this podcast because <laughs> I love talking about her, and she would have been great to talk about in this um, in this context as well. But we'll have to return to her, and we'll talk about definitely,
0: we'll talk about definitely. that another Look time. I think. So, what conclusion yeah. have you come to in terms of Caravaggio and his personal life choices, and how you're able to interact with his artwork? Honestly. Mm-hmm.
1: His personal life has very little to do with the artwork that he created because he was hired to do a job. Fair enough. I think if you are a student of Caravaggio or you are a student mm. of the Italian Broke, if you are really interested in this topic, go ahead and explore all of this. Write to me. I will send you a reading list, okay? Like I took <laughs> a whole seminar on Caravaggio. I will send you the syllabus if you want to see it, okay? And be aware of these things, you know, but it's not mm-hmm. going to totally change, change the your- did. It's not going to change the work he did. It's not going to change your experience with the work that he did. You don't know the person that he killed. We don't know the circumstances of that murder happening. This is the difference, major difference between my example and your example, Elle. Nobody alive that I know has been affected personally by the actions of Carmacho. Fair. And we're very lucky in that regard.
0: Yes, we are. (laughs) So I think that's a great transition into my case study. So as you mentioned, my choice is someone who's alive. So I wanted to look at someone who is alive to give that counterexample because a lot of art history has passed, right? We have a lot of artwork out there that exists from a long time ago, but it is very different when you're looking at someone who's still alive and still making work and how that changes our decisions in how we interact with things, right? So there are plenty of modern day artists I could have chosen. And I thought long and hard when I'm making this decision and made the choice I did because I wanted to choose an artist who had affected my life personally so that I could look at it from that perspective. But also I wanted to choose someone who there had been time since it occurred. So it is a personal situation that I have been personally affected by this, but there's been time since it happened and I have been able to process and I can now discuss this topic without quite the emotional feelings that I initially did when things first happened. Right.
1: So it's not quite as raw for you now you've had time to process and you feel more comfortable having this conversation. So thank you for being so deliberate and thoughtful in this.
0: Thank you. You're you're very welcome. So I chose an author, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books. And it's personal for me because I grew up, like many of our listeners, I'm sure, reading the Harry Potter books and discussing late into the night with my friends and waiting in line to, to get the next copy or, or to go see the latest movie. And that series had a big impact on my life. I have a lot of fond memories of, of growing up with those books. But I also have some very personal memories with my family mixed up with that. And for anyone who might not know, J.K. Rowling has spoken against trans women in particular. She continues to say that she supports trans people, but she doesn't see trans women as women. So the term, and it is a term, not a slur or a slander against. The term for that is TERF stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical feminist feminist. And it's the idea that someone claims that they are a feminist yet they exclude trans people from being who they say they are. Pretty straightforward. That does affect my life and people I know and love. I have found that very hurtful, you know? And that complicates my memories of the series that I truly love. So the thing is that I then had to decide to what extent I wanted to engage with the series that I have all of these connections to further. Many, many fans have had to make this decision. How do I continue to engage or not continue to engage with the works of Harry Potter? And I think what I personally decided, we'll start there. What I personally decided was that I cannot spend my money on objects that give money to J.K. Rowling because she has a platform. That's the big problem for me. She has a platform in which she can very vocally continue to express ideas that are hurtful and harmful to actual living live people today. And anytime I give my money to that, even if I don't feel like I'm giving my money to that, it allows her to continue having a platform. So that is the decision I have made is that I cannot financially support that. But a lot of fans are doing different things. Some people have decided that they don't want anything more to do with Harry Potter ever again, and that it's incredibly hateful and hurtful. There are some people who are like, well, I already have the copies of the books. I can still enjoy the books or I can still watch the movies that I already own. I just won't go purchase more things. There are some people who are going out and purchasing things from small Etsy store owners and stuff. So small artists who are making their money so that they can still have the things they love without supporting JK Rowling. And then there are some people who, for whatever reason, aren't bothered by it. Figure she has enough money that it doesn't matter whether or not they buy the stuff and and she's going to continue to have money. So what does it matter? Everybody has to make their own choices. One thing that I found interesting today, actually, was I was scrolling through Facebook and I found an article about some fans that have found a way to make a difference for themselves. So in the game, in the books of Harry Potter, there is a game called Quidditch played on broomsticks flying in the air with different balls not Going to go into the whole description if you don't know what Quidditch is, definitely look it up, it's interesting. But us muggles, those who don't have magic, um, liked the idea of this game so much that some people went out and created an actual game that can be played without flying on broomsticks up in the air because sadly we can't do that. Oh, wow,
1: <laughs> not yet, anyway.
0: Uh, not yet, anyway. Bezos, we'll answer when, uh...
1: my calls.
0: but anyway so this this quidditch game um there's there's actually a u.s quidditch league and a major league quidditch which they banded together and announced recently that they are changing the name to be less connected with JK Rowling. Now there's, they haven't said exactly what they're going to change the name of the sport to be, and they're still going to continue to play it and, and to have the same rules of how the game is played, but they don't want that connection. They don't want that message of, or the appearance of support for JK Rowling to continue. And I thought that that was a really unique and creative way to, to kind of address that situation for, for themselves. Again, I fully support people deciding for themselves where those lines are. So, yeah. Thank
1: you so, yeah. for articulating that so well, Elle. And what I was so flummoxed about mm-hmm. when this all kind of hit the papers and we all came to this realization about rolling is the whole thing just seems so contrary to the entire world and message that she had created. For so many of us, Harry Potter was what taught us to be yourself and to find Mm -hmm. the magic within you and the power of love, loving each other, loving yourself and your chosen family and so many things that are so important to to our
0: generation. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then to hear out loud, he came out of a closet. He was living in a closet. (laughs) Right? Like so many people found a connection to the characters in these books because they felt different or other in various ways, right? And this was really a chance for them to find. And they did, they found a community. You know, I I think that is one of the most beautiful things that came out of these books in the series is that there is a beautiful community of people who found each other who were feeling alone and disconnected and weird and a million other words and descriptors. Mm -hmm. And they found each other and found friendships and relationships Mm -hmm. and families, um, and I, I think still that, that is beautiful. It.
1: That's so beautiful. I still find it incredibly bonding. When I kind of make a new friend, I don't want to know what your zodiac sign is. I want to know what your Hogwarts house is.
0: All right. What's your house?
1: Oh, I'm a Ravenclaw. <laughs> that should be very clear. Just look at the bookshelves behind me, Al.
0: <laughs> I know, but the audience, but our listeners can't, can't see your bookshelf. They should be
1: able to tell just from my voice and everything about me.
0: <laughs> and you Fair are. Enough.
1: You are. Oh, on up I'm a it.
0: Ravenpuff. I'm a Raven Puff. I am. I am split down the middle, wholeheartedly Raven Puff, because I don't believe that one house encapsulates who I am. So. No, that's
1: not. The, I. I think that's the funny thing. I think we all have equal parts of each of them yeah. in us, and I think that might be the point. But moving
0: on. Exactly. Exactly. Moving so on. So
1: we have two incredibly different uh, yes. case studies here. Our,
0: our music guru would like everyone to know that she is a Hufflepuff, and yes, yes. Music Guru, you are one of the most huffly huffle Hufflepuffs I, uh, I know in existence.
1: You huffle um, and puffle harder than anyone <laughs> has ever huffled and puffled before. And I just made that up and it was actually incredibly difficult to say.
0: <laughs> that was delightful. Well done. <laughs>
1: I'm going to take that. Thank you very much.
0: Please do. Anyway, um, so yeah. this brings us back to the the topic as a whole. And I think what are two different examples really give us is two things, right? The luxurious of temporal distance. So with Caravaggio, there's been tons of time, right? As mm-hmm. you said, we don't know him. JK Rowling still exists, still doing things, still has yes, a platform.
1: And the luxury of temporal distance is it's it's a slippery slope because it's very good practice and very responsible for a historian to say this person came out of an alien planet. To me, Right. Mm-hmm. If I landed on the streets of Rome in 1600, not only would I be burned as a witch in like five minutes, but oh, I yeah. would have no idea what was going on. I speak Italian. I'd have no idea what anybody was saying. I wouldn't walk right. I wouldn't talk right. I wouldn't look right. Nothing. There is this is a completely foreign place. We cannot understand this time as much as we strive to do. And we cannot Judge somebody from this time period based on our own entrenched modern values. We have that mm-hmm. with Cutabagio. I say it's a slippery slope because if we're not careful about that, it can feel like a cop out. Completely. We
0: Completely. don't
1: have that with J.K. Rowling because she exists now and according to modern values and sensibilities.
0: Yeah. And I think that ties into our second part with with her being alive, with her still having a platform, contributing money to her allows that platform to continue. Purchasing a postcard or a book about Caravaggio doesn't doesn't financially allow him to go murder someone else, right? Not that that he would have done that, but just like, you know, it doesn't continue his questionable life choices. Um, oh, good. I
1: got five cents on the royalties of that book. I'm going to go stab a guy. Yeah.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, what can I say? He
1: was a he was a nasty dude anyway, but he was a grumpy artist. What the heck do we yeah. want? Anyway. But
0: I, I think that also opens the door for a good discussion of uh, for something that historians, um, art historians or non art historians <laughs> to, uh, to to keep in mind is is the concept of being desensitized right you kind of brought that up a little bit earlier yeah Um, so when
1: I say I'm really good at separating I'm often accused of being desensitized or accused is too strong of a word but I'm labeled as mm -hmm. desensitized and it's I am not So it's not like I've been watching Game of Thrones for five years and I'm no longer shocked by the blood and the gore. Although that that happened, (laughs) I was desensitized by blood on television from watching Game of Thrones for a really long time. I'm not desensitized. I am not desensitized. I am used to feeling uncomfortable. And that looks very different. Yes. I would like to give a I shout think- out. I would like to give a shout out to the Coalition of Master Scholars in Material Culture. I am heavily involved with that organization. They are an online journal, totally run by people with master's degrees, and it they cover all sorts of scholarship on uh, material culture, and they publish work that was done on a master's level. So giving space to people who don't have PhDs, giving them space to share their work. Their okay. inaugural symposium, which I was lucky enough to speak at, was entitled History Should Make You Uncomfortable. And I think it is one of the best things that historians and in fact, people can be reminded of. And I think putting it in the positive like that history should make you feel uncomfortable is, is very important to remember with art because there's a lot of discussion going on right now of This image reflects something that is distasteful or makes me feel uncomfortable, so we shouldn't look at it. But here's the problem with that. If it's an image of an event or an action that hurt people, that affected people, that dehumanized people, and we take the picture away, if we try to remove the visual evidence of it, we have actually removed the people who were affected. We have removed their agencies rather than producing more art to grant agency to these people, we have further removed them. So
0: yeah, exactly. I I think that while I wouldn't say that I can't speak for all art historians and historians, but I think in general, a lot of us are driven by this need to understand. And we want to, not that we want to be uncomfortable, but that we want to understand why things were and how, how it all worked. They say um, this to me
1: at the gym, you only grow outside of your comfort zone. Yes. So you're in spin class, dial it up from five to six, right? But this is true in all of life. We only grow when we mm-hmm. only learn outside of our comfort zone. So this is why we say history should make you uncomfortable. Yeah. History is, is often very uncomfortable to learn about. It's very delightful and wonderful in so many ways, but always, there's something uncomfortable about.
0: yeah. And, and the other side of that is that if we don't learn about these things, if we don't make ourselves uncomfortable and, and continue to learn about artists and people who, who have come before us, then we lose the, the ability to learn from that. We erase the history that subsequently you know teaches us about ourselves today right? If we don't understand what happened to get us to this point today, then we can't fully make uh, informed decisions about our day-to-day actions in, in our lives. Knowing where we come from in terms of politics, in terms of culture, and, you know, I mean, understanding white supremacy, not that we're going into a discussion on that, but as an example, understanding that where colonialism comes from helps us understand the political situation we're in today, right? And the same thing is true about artists. If we erase the artists completely and don't talk about their past and who they are, we potentially lose the history of how art got to where it is and what we understand about art in general.
1: To wrap this up and to to bring home what Ella's saying, before we kind of leave you off, I'd like to bring in something that, P- Pablo Picasso is reported to have said. Now, Picasso is an artist who has come under this microscope himself. I'll just recognize that. But he said something that reflects me, that that affects me very deeply. We all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize truth, at least the truth that is given us to understand. Unquote. Yeah. Removing a picture does not remove the event from history.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: But keeping it up and keeping it visible is how we interact most directly and most accessibly with the past. And you will hear often a phrase that drives me wild, which is we study history so that the past does not repeat itself. Oh, honey, sweetie, baby, history repeats itself every day. (laughs) We study history so that we recognize when it repeats itself and we know what to do.
0: But I think that the dividing on that in terms of re- removing things, for example, is again, is it personally causing someone harm right now? Thank you. Right. Yes. And I, and I think, yes, we need to keep things. Yes, we need to continue to learn about things. Mm-hmm. Do we need to continue to cause harm to someone on a daily basis in order to do that? No, there are other ways to learn about those things mm-hmm. in a way that wouldn't be harmful. Um, so, I, so again, this is a, a complex issue. oh with no. so many layers yeah. and and it, and each individual situation has to be looked at by a person for themselves. So in conclusion, are we able to separate art from the artist, Christine?
1: Yes and no.
0: <laughs> I know so helpful guys.
1: <laughs> if you came for answers, it's just art is here for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I hope what we did leave you with today is some. Some good items to reflect on as you go forward and in interacting with artwork for yourself in, in your choi- ability to make choices mm-hmm. about what you want to engage with, how you want to engage with, and how you want to make those decisions for yourself. So, the question I would like to leave you with today is Have the actions of an artist ever ruined their work for you? Please reach out and let us know.
1: Thank you for joining today's conversation and for tuning in to season one of the It's Just Art podcast. We hope you join us again for season two. Stay tuned. If you'd like to be more involved with It's Just Art, you can follow us on Instagram and or Facebook at It's Just Art Podcast. Please remember to like, follow, and review this podcast on your platform of choice. And we look forward to hearing from you. Once again, my name is Christine Staten.
0: I'm El Claus.
1: And remember, It's Just it's Art.
0: It's Just Art.
1: Until next time, take care.